Gordon. He is, of course, a Richmond native. He covers transportation, housing, and land use for the Mercury. How are you today, Wyatt? Hey, I'm doing great, Armando. Thanks for having me. So a few months ago, it always struck me that Build Back Better, along with ARPA and the American Families Plan on the federal level, but a particular Build Back Better was aimed at this idea that we can go about making once-in-a-generation investments into infrastructure. The original plan was something on the scale of $10 trillion, which is about what the Chinese have spent over the last 10 to 15 years in updating their rail networks, their highway networks, their infrastructure and broadband. However, Bernie Sanders came out with a proposal for $6 trillion, and then it got cut to $3.5 trillion, and then it got further cut to $1.9 and $1.75. I covered that, and Joe Manchin's got a gift for you. And Joe Manchin just essentially came out later, and he took the heat for Kirsten Cinema at the time, who was already being dogged pretty badly. And Joe Manchin just goes out on Fox News like, I'm actually not going to support Bill Black Better at all. It doesn't matter what is inside the bill. He gave every excuse in the book between taxes and inflation to immigration to he didn't want the child tax credit going towards drugs. I kid you not. However, in the case of Richmond, Richmond is a very old city, and it suffers from extraordinary racial disparities, but also extraordinary wealth and income disparities. And nowhere else is wealth access to society and integration into society more prominent than in transportation and in infrastructure because that is the way that we get around. That's the way that we talk to one another. That's how we decide who we're going to invest in and what neighborhoods we're going to actually integrate into the city because literally, in the case of Fulton, a town just outside of Richmond borders, for the longest time, there wasn't even a bus stop there. And so how do you integrate a neighborhood into community, or how do you create one if they literally can't move? Generally, that's one of the hardest parts about being a city government in the United States is with federalism, everything that the federal government or state doesn't take care of, the local city government is responsible for it. And so they have to go about financing roads, bridges, broadband infrastructure, water, gas, electricity, things like that. They have to go about expanding, and that is very difficult when you have historically impoverished communities. In the case of Richmond, you have covered pretty extensively how Richmond went from not only a city that was far more walkable and more tight-knit, but also had far less surface area covered in asphalt, in particular dedicated to parking cars. I really wanted to talk to you about that because cars are, and I've talked about this elsewhere, not only an integral part in a breach of Fourth Amendment rights when it comes to search and seizure and also privacy, also cars have played an integral role in destroying historically black Richmond when they uprooted nearly the entirety of Jackson's War in order to run Highway 95 slash 64 through it and displaced an entire community. Of course, at the time, we didn't unlead gasoline until, like, the early to mid-90s, so spewing all sorts of exhaust and heavy metals and other chemicals into the air, poisoning these communities, not giving them any sort of actual financial recompense. I would like to understand from your perspective the role that cars have played in the development of Richmond and what that has looked like over the last century or so. Yeah, thank you for that intro, Armando. So what the technology of cars did is it changed and kind of atomized American society in a lot of ways. I think people tend to look back in history and think that pre-cars, everyone just rode on horses everywhere, similarly to the way that people use cars today. So they maybe had to go a mile down the road and they would hop on their horse and go there. And that's just not the case at all. A lot of people didn't own any other method of transportation besides the shoes that they walked around with. So when you look at earlier eras, the city of Richmond was very compact. The development started at the river, at the docks, where trade was, where all the money was, and it gradually grew up the hill 
we've always been a very segregated society and city. Broad Street used to be the dividing line between white people who are south of Broad and closer to the center of commerce and Jackson Ward formed because black people weren't allowed on the other side of Broad Street to, to live. That's also why we have a lot of black cemeteries in the East End and the North Side is because black people weren't allowed to be buried within city limits. So you really see the development of this prosperous black community around Jackson Ward due to segregation and due to limitations of technology, transportation technology that is. As the streetcar becomes a thing, and Richmond was the first to have an electrified streetcar network in the world, you start to see this growth expand. So this is when you get new communities down in Forest Hill, out towards the West End, Fulton, for example, all the way out to Sandston at the airport, Highland Park, Ginter Park, Battery Park, all of these had dedicated streetcar lines. So whereas before these parts of town would have been essentially undevelopable because the distances that people would have had to walk to access jobs and school and everything else were just too far. Now you have this amazing streetcar system that allows you to hop on and off for a relatively affordable price and get everywhere you need to go much faster. So you have to really think about transportation and land use as two sides of the same coin. The way we do land use today would be completely unfeasible without the dawn of the car. You can't have people living 15 miles out in Short Pump or down out in Chesterfield and have that be an actual feasible way to get around unless you have transportation technology that backs that up. Whereas most other developed countries have chosen to invest in more social common good style transportation via streetcars or buses, just generally better transportation systems that focus on mass transit. We have taken a very American approach of focusing on individualized automobiles. I think there's a few different reasons for that. One is that American society has a pretty strong fear of each other. I think there's a lack of solidarity and mutual understanding and even kind of a willingness to be around people that aren't like you based on race or socioeconomic levels. Also, you see the dawn of the automobile happening at this time where American society is in flux in regards to the topic of race. So if you go back and you look at the initial era of the automobile, people who owned cars were seen kind of villains. You know, they would drive quickly. They would hit people, kill people. You just have to kind of go back and look at the Great Gatsby as an example where traffic violence is actually a theme. It's a plot device, and there's real characterizations of people in cars, kind of these wild maniacs. That all starts to shift because the automobile industry really invested a lot of money in trying to change the public's perception around cars and what role they should have in American society. So in the 40s is when you start to see the introduction of jaywalking as a concept in a public information campaign, essentially a propaganda campaign by the automobile industry. So before, it was clearly the fault of the driver if someone was run over and killed. And what jaywalking did was to systemically shift the responsibility for who was being killed by traffic violence onto the pedestrian. And this is a phenomenon that you'll see across American society when we don't want to come up with or don't have the resources to come up with a structural solution, we start to blame individual behavior or we write off bad outcomes as accidents. This dynamic plays out to this day. That's why, you know, last year we had over 42,000 Americans killed on our streets. And you don't hear people talking about this because a certain level of death is just priced into our transportation system today incredibly wild. And I think that's really important to, to put out there. Combined with, you know, American opulence and, uh, of course, this constant consumer idea that is put out there by the public relations departments of companies, think Don Draper, of this idea that you have to have the best of the best. And on top of that, the kind of racism, the kind of virulent racism that exists within American society Literally, for the longest time, segregation was the law of the land. Redlining, in many cases, wasn't just encouraged, accepted. It was very much so the law of whatever city or state that you lived in. And that greatly contributes to the kind of distance, 
literal physical distance between these two communities, those who would be considered white, those who would appear white, and those who would be considered black, or at least those who would appear black. And so you have to have this by design, this physical separation. So when you get that physical separation and you combine that with also at the end of World War II, you have the United States essentially the most powerful nation really to have ever existed, has security on both sides of the ocean, has a direct line to Saudi Arabia and light crews, has essentially, along with the British Empire, a monopoly over oil resources in the Middle East. Not to mention the United States to this day is still one of the world's, if not the world's largest producer of fossil fuels. So you get this perfect storm inside the United States of the need to absorb income in the post-war period, this consumer idea of better and better and more luxurious modes of transportation that are individualized. There are things that you own, things that you have, things that are status symbols and wealth indicators about you. And on top of that, you get this incredible racism, this wanting of separation between yourself, if you're a white person, yourself, and those who would be considered lesser than you. And that's sort of perfect storm. One can get a better picture of how it is that we got to this moment. You talked about just recently how the automobile industry really supplanted much of the transportation network that the United States was starting to build. We know the famous stories about the underground subways that were going to happen in places like Chicago, places like New York, places out in the West, particularly California. Many of these cities decided to uproot or not invest in subway systems and instead invest in massive highway projects that were great for absorbing surplus capital in terms of having world investment come to the United States, great in terms of being able to provide jobs to people over extended periods of time because you have to clear enormous sections of land and go about flattening it, taming it, all that goes along with that, and also its maintenance. But then you also get this component of cars are incredibly dangerous. You know, Ralph Nader got his start in politics. He got most of his national notoriety and attention based on his book, Unsafe at Any Speed. And it talks about the way in which the automobile industry not only fought tooth and nail against things like airbags, against things like ABS sensors for brakes, and especially against seatbelts, that they were so determined to save that little bit extra money and to not inconvenience their riders and to not break this idea of what they had was a car, that they were willing to risk their consumers' lives and really many people's lives in the United States. Many people forget the kind of regulatory fights that the left had to make in order to get the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate the air and the water within the United States to organize what are called Superfund sites along with the Department of Energy in order to at least corner off toxic zones of either radioactivity, biological contamination, or chemical contamination, or just pollution outright. But also further, there's this push as well that the danger that cars pose to people on the road and the imposition of things like jaywalking laws really speak towards the extent to which private capital has a, a, a vice grip on this society, and it has for quite a long time. So if you can, can you sort of detail to me about Richmond, in particular the, the highway system, but also in terms of the amount of transformation in Richmond that has gone towards instead of housing or what many people call multi-use real estate or development to go about having food, housing next to one another, if not stacked on top of one another. We see that somewhat on Broad Street. However, it's not integrated largely, and generally those are two separate designs. Instead of making infrastructure more dense, we spread it out and we require people to have cars. Can you sort of talk about how the maintenance of, of having to keep these huge plots of asphalt open in order to be able to park cars, 
has impacted the maneuverability of Richmond, the walkability of Richmond, the ability to feel a part of the community, or at the very least, to be able to integrate yourself even into the city? Yeah, I think the best way to think about cars and the problems that they present is via geometry. You know, they are large and increasingly larger steel cages that people travel around and they require a lot of space. They require lanes to travel. They require spots to be parked in. And they're just an incredibly inefficient use of space, especially in dense urban environments where space is at such a premium. So if you want kind of a, a specific example of things that car storage prevents, I think the best place to start is by looking at parking minimums. So these are kind of this idea that was created by one local city planner who was just kind of writing on the back of a napkin, okay, how many spots do all these different facilities need? And began to require them in local code. It spread like wildfire from there because you have this growing constituency of people who want to park their car anywhere, everywhere, and for free. So when you talk about parking, you're really coming up against this sense of entitlement from drivers that they should be able to park immediately in front of the business that they want to visit or immediately in front of their own property. And I think a lot of people will recognize this experience from Richmond where, depending on where you live, you might even just go and park your car in front of your neighbor's house and someone will actually come out and say, you know, hey, this is this is my spot, even though it's technically just public right-of-way and anyone can be there. But with parking minimums, it creates this mandatory number that developers have to meet when they're building new units. So, for example, maybe you want to have 20 apartments and each apartment is required to have two parking units. Now where you maybe had a one acre site and you could have built five units per floor, you're looking at four floors, but now you have to accommodate for 40 cars. And where do you store those cars? Because street parking is not allowed to be counted. You have to provide dedicated off-street privatized space. So now you're looking at the amount of land that's developable that that person owns has just gone down because you can't build that same amount of parking or you need a lot of money to build a parking garage. It's about $35,000 per spot when you build a parking garage. And those costs are not eaten by the developers. Those costs are added into the pricing of the entire project, which means they are passed along to those folks who move in, whether that's condos or rental units. Eventually, that cost is handed over to the consumer of said housing, increasing housing costs in general. We see from places that have gotten rid of mandatory parking minimums that the price of housing generally tends to drop. Developers are no longer required to build this arbitrary number of parking spaces. They will continue to build parking because there is a demand for it. You know, people do want to park their cars and a said number of people are willing to pay a premium for that. It no longer requires an artificial number of parking spots to be built. So this is kind of like this odd cancer on our housing market where when you look at a lot of these new developments that are coming up around Richmond, you see maybe like three, four to six story apartment buildings popping up around town. And then outside of the explicit building, if you look at the footprint on the lot, it's all parking. So you have these relatively nice new housing towers coming out of the ground, but then you don't have any space for, if we look at, if we look at some of our peer countries in Europe and how they build, they tend to dedicate a lot more of their space to communal spaces. So you might have an interior courtyard, you might have a park, you'll have more dedicated space for neighbors to kind of share without just storing private vehicles. So what you kind of create is even in a lot of the new housing that we're building, you create these atomized lifestyles where people wake up in their individual unit, they walk down these long fairly bland corridors, they go to their parking spot, they drive to their office, they come back from work, they park in their parking spot, and then they go back into their apartment without really knowing any of the people who 
they live around. And that's a completely different experience if you don't drive a car or if you live in a historic building that tends to only have a single stairwell and fewer units. You don't have the same level of anonymity and social isolation. Anyone who is a frequent transit rider will know. You start to get to know your different bus drivers. You might even learn their names. You build up a repertoire. You recognize people. You know, if you go to work at the same time every day, you start to get to know your neighbors. You start to see people as they're moving through the city in a different way. You know, if you're in a car, everything seems to be an impediment. Not just people walking, not just the bus, not people biking, but other cars. You know, everyone who drives hates every other driver. <laughs> so cars set this antisocial paradigm for how people get around the city. When you walk or bike, you're moving at a speed at which you can really interact with those around you. The level of danger that cyclists face when traversing Richmond also creates a sense of solidarity. So cyclists tend to wave at each other, say hello. There's a sense that people are looking out for each other. And the same is true when you ride the bus. You wait at a stop with other people. You'll chat with the folks who are at your stop. You'll maybe chat with some of the people on the bus as you're getting to where you're going. And you also start to see the different lives that people live. So you may notice the single dad pushing a stroller and trying to get it secured on the bus. You may notice the person in a wheelchair who needs a little bit more time or help getting on or off the bus. And you start to understand better who is around you and people that are often invisible to drivers because um, driving is not something that can help everyone get around. I think there's a lot of conversation around when we're when we're thinking about how to reduce the level of car dependency in Richmond. There are people who say, you know, hey, I depend on a car. I'm disabled or I'm elderly. I have these reasons which mean I need my car. And I think that is kind of the the problem when people say ban cars as a slogan, which is clearly facetious and just kind of playful, but some people don't have that nuanced insider perspective on it and kind of take it for face value. But the reality is that we're never going to get rid of cars. But for those people who do need to drive to access things, reducing the number of cars that are on the road or trying to park actually ends up benefiting them as well. It's all really about how do we shift people who don't necessarily need to be taking their car for this trip into other ways of getting around. So, you know, maybe you want to go the mile to the store in your neighborhood. And that's somewhat of a fantasy here in Richmond as we have, you know, over 40% of our population is in a food desert. But say you live close to one of our few and far between grocery stores and you want to make that last mile trip. Well, maybe you can walk if the sidewalks are safe enough. If you have a separated protected bike lane, Maybe you'll feel comfortable to load your kid into your bike. Maybe you have a cargo bike and you'll go and do some grocery shopping that way because you have space so that's safe enough to do so. If you have fast, frequent, reliable transit on that corridor, maybe you'll just hop in the next bus in five minutes and ride down and ride back, feeling fully comfortable and knowing that there's going to be another bus within the next 10 to 15 minutes that will bring you back when you're done. It's all really about the choices of how we make investments. And unfortunately, in Metro Richmond, we just continue to invest far too much money into increasing car dependency. We're not even starting to go in the right direction. We're really still worsening people's lack of mobility options to get around town. You can look at the Richmond city budget. You see, we only put $8 million towards GRTC every year, the Greater Richmond Transit Company. In contrast, our paving budget has expanded up to over $33 million, I believe. Even if you just looked in 2020, we used to give $16 million to GRTC and only spend about $15 million on paving. So you can really see that our priorities are kind of going backwards. If you look at a larger region, we had the creation of the Central Virginia Transportation Authority in 2020. Only 15% of that roughly $200 million that is generated each year through that authority goes to GRTC. The other 50% is reserved for localities to kind of use as a slush fund on transportation spending how they see fit, overwhelmingly roads. Then there's 35% dedicated for regional spending, also overwhelmingly used to bond out 
money for highways. So when you really look at the CVTA's long-range transportation plan for 2045, you know, where do we want to be over 20 years into the future? 90% of those billions of dollars are going to highways, expanding them, maintaining them, widening them. So we're really not even at a place where we're starting to think seriously about reducing car dependency. Um, we are currently still doing a lot of things to expand car dependency, whether that's only focusing our budget on paving so that people can't begin to see transit as a reliable alternative to driving everywhere, or if it's like the CVTA where one of their top priorities is to expand the Powhite Parkway further out into Powhatan and build up a lot of McMansion suburban sprawl that will, for generations, not be sustainable for the climate, not be accessible to the vast majority of the region, and it'll really lock in these pretty terrible social outcomes where people are isolated and trapped on the edge of the city, having to spend large amounts of money on transportation to get to and from their home. So we're a really long way away from turning a corner on these issues, unfortunately. Right. And that's really where the proverbial rubber meets the road is when it comes to transportation, what we're really talking about is the largest greenhouse gas emitter inside the United States. And really, by itself, one of the largest greenhouse greenhouse gas emissions ever in human history, but especially in the contemporary world, some of the largest greenhouse gas releases in the world. And it's not just as you said, it, it, it's not just the expansion, the maintaining of these asphalt roads and how fossil fuel intensive the machines are, the transportation is, and the actual material is itself, but also the kind of damage that it does to the environment that it's in. You have to literally eviscerate an entire ecosystem within a set plot of land in order to be able just to move throughout the land. Instead of having more congregated, more concentrated sources of housing and food, business, recreation, it is all spread out over tens, if not hundreds of square miles. And the only way to navigate that would be through public transportation or it would be through an individualized, as you said, atomized transportation network, which would be cars. And cars, as you said, are just getting, especially within like the 80s and 90s, with the introduction of things like the Ford Bronco and then the Ford Explorer, you get the GMC Sierra, you start getting these, the Escalade, everyone knows in the early 2000s, these cars just get larger and larger and larger. The Hummer, up until up until gas prices really started spiking within the mid-2000s, the Hummer was seen as this excellent car that, of course, it's military surplus, that could come home to the United States and prowl the streets. Incredible about all this is that these huge vehicles are not only incredibly fossil fuel intensive in terms of the amount of gasoline that they take in, the kind of fuel that they use and the amount of fossil fuel that it takes to make a car of that size and weight. But in particular, the kind of pressure that that puts on roads. Not many people know that roads just aren't asphalt over land. There's several inches, oftentimes six to 12 inches worth of concrete, sand, other building material that's under the asphalt that we see. And all of that is essentially a land bridge and within that land bridge, the amount of weight that is put on the asphalt by things like tractor trailers are accounted for with special taxes and also regulated through things like way stations, especially after 9-11. But with these massive cars, you have a lot of weight on these land bridges. And when that does happen, you have essentially this squashing. You can see it especially uh, out past West Broad Street when you're coming up on the intersection of West Broad and Crunch Gym. 
when you are right out there, you can see where they've tried to repair the roads, but the tractor trailers have come through and literally mushed the asphalt, pushed it up several inches in every direction to the point where if you're a regular car and drive over it, it's almost like a pothole. The amount of weight that a lot of these vehicles have displaced the concrete because it's actually quite spongy material. It's meant to absorb impact and sound. The amount of maintenance that goes into that is really incredible. And it's an incredible expense on cities in order to keep up with local roads and even states to keep up with roads with vehicles that have that kind of weight. And no special license is required. I think many people who would listen to this have seen the, the graphic, whether it be on social media or maybe through an email chain, an article that they read, where it shows different viewing distances or stopping distances in front of these large SUVs and cars. And the amount of kids that can lay down in front of your car and you would never see any of them before hitting the gas. A lot of these cars don't require special licenses. They don't have any sort of special taxes on them in terms of property tax or in terms of a transportation tax. But cities like D.C. are beginning to push back on that. I would like to know your thoughts in particular on the viability of our infrastructure plan when it comes to meeting climate goals because we know that right now out in Tokyo, there is a huge heat wave that is going on there, and the energy grid of Japan can barely keep up with the demands of air conditioning because human beings like to be comfortable, but also we evolved in environments that are like 60, 70 degrees, and yet we have pumped so much CO2 in the air, and also we've moved into places around the world and settled into them with the expectation that we are going to have fossil fuels to be able to fuel that expansion and transportation. What is your take on the kind of impact that transportation and infrastructure in terms of actually connecting society, transporting goods from place to place is going to have on the climate fight that we're coming up against? Because in Japan, it's, well over two degrees C that they are facing in terms of localized pockets of heat. In Virginia, we have what are called heat islands. Certain cities like Richmond will be hotter than cities in the south like Suffolk or Chesapeake or Virginia Beach or vice versa. I really would like to know what are your thoughts on what role transportation plays in terms of both this atomized way of looking at the world in terms of cars, but also in terms of tractor trailers and vans and other huge transportation vehicles that are used to move goods back and forth. You have things like Amazon that are dedicated. UPS is FedEx is dedicated to the idea that there aren't concentrated places where people are able to access goods. It is all based on the idea, especially when it comes to Amazon, that you can go about filling up this van once or twice a day and just drive around in these neighborhoods and emit incredible amounts of exhaust and waste, not to mention CO2 emissions. I would like to get your, your thoughts on how transportation fits into the climate fight. Yeah, transportation is a huge part of climate. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, transportation and land use are two sides of the same coin. So without a certain type of transportation, a certain type of land use is not possible. So if you think, you know, if we were not to have 288 here in Metro Richmond, a ton of development way out in the Chesterfield exurbs would not be possible because it would simply just take too long for people to get from the outer edges of Chesterfield into the city. Because we have spent billions of dollars on such highways, we make essentially the time rubber. It would have taken a certain amount of time to get into the city on rural roads from these destinations. Now it takes half of that. So you're ultimately, by building highways, you're just incentivizing suburban sprawl. You're saying instead of vesting in dense 
public transit, which would allow people to do smart infill development and to live closer to where they work so they might be able to walk in bike places. You're explicitly investing your money into a climate disaster, which is highways. You know, you don't even have to look overseas to see the impacts this is having. You know, the, the Texas grid has collapsed a couple times in the past few years, whether from extreme heat or from extreme cold. All of that is being driven by climate change. But you also have to look at the responsibility for that. You know, studies recently have been showing that they believe the Texas Department of Transportation alone is responsible for 0.5% of global emissions simply because they're building out highways that have 12 lanes in one direction in a lot of their urban cities. That all comes at an incredible price. You're really trapping people into having to drive everywhere and raising the cost of being a normal member of society to mandate car ownership, which again and again studies are showing these costs are really exploding even before you really add in the rise in gas prices that we've seen recently. A car costs about $10,000 per vehicle per household. So if you are building in a way in which a family of four is then required to have three vehicles, you know, one for each parent and one maybe to split among two children, you're really locking in these households into a required spending every year of $30,000 for three vehicles. That's not sustainable. I mean, that's why you're really seeing a lot of household struggle. And if you dig into the inflation numbers, I believe 18% of recent inflation is tied specifically to transportation. Yeah, whether your issue is looking at household spending and you want to help support households to be able to keep more money in their pockets, Transportation is hugely important. I mean, I think that's part of why the fight for zero fares here in Richmond is such a big deal, not because it necessarily leads to a better transit system. Having zero fares does allow buses to move quicker and more efficiently because you don't have people lining up to pay fares. It reduces conflict between operators and passengers when passengers may not be able to afford the fare that they need to get home. That creates conflict. So there are a lot of really positive things about zero fare. But to me, I think the number one is really looking at that issue of household cost. People who ride the bus tend to be some of the most low-income Richmonders. Their reliance upon the bus, because we don't fund the bus very well, is often out of necessity. That's not to say that they don't have other choices. If the bus service gets so bad, people will figure out other ways to get around. They'll carpool, they'll walk, they'll bike. Even if the distances are long, it's a less frustrating way to get around than if the transit system really becomes so dysfunctional. But that boon to household financing by being able to remove transportation costs, which in good times are roughly considered to be about 15% of household spending, that's huge. When you think about the climate impacts of transportation, here in Virginia alone, transportation accounts for 48% of all carbon pollution. And it's not really an area where people seem to be learning their lessons. You know, if if you're old enough to think back to around 2008 when we had a similar surge in gas prices, the automotive industry saw sales of sedans and more modest cars increase. And then as gas prices started to regulate, you saw them immediately double down on making bigger, more gas-guzzling vehicles. So. If you go back in time 10 years ago, it used to be that SUVs and trucks made up only 25% of all automotive sales. Today, those numbers have flipped. Now 75% of all vehicles, new vehicles sold are SUVs and trucks. Also, the sizes of these vehicles are getting increasingly larger. Now you're seeing trucks and SUVs moving around that function more like tanks. Recent explorations have shown that a lot of these vehicles are as large as tanks that were used by General Sherman in the 40s. So you're really moving away (laughs) from this idea of efficiency, and then people wonder why their transportation expenses and their budgets are going up and getting squeezed. But you see this decision-making that is kind of disconnected from the reality of where we're at in this moment, both in terms of 
the cost of these large vehicles, the number of Americans who are killed each year by these vehicles, as well as the climate. So it's it's really a difficult moment because on the one hand, there is this hope that we are at a turning point. You know, you're seeing exploding sales for e-bikes. Ever more people are moving closer and closer to where they live and work. So there is this kind of positive feeling that we could be turning a corner on some of these problems. But I think that kind of ignores the fact that we have 80 years of doubling down on car dependency. So it's kind of like layers of an onion that we need to gradually peel back over generations. And I think that's really being hopeful that we have even turned a a turning point. I mean, based on the conversation we were having earlier about the way we're choosing to spend our money, you don't really see a forward-thinking funding plan at any local government on transportation, let alone the Central Virginia Transportation Authority, when it's actually very, very easy and affordable to switch kind of our paradigms. Highways are incredibly expensive. We spend billions of dollars on them each year. VDOT alone has an $8 billion budget every year. And when you think about the best solutions that we see from other parts of the world, which are enabling people to walk and bike safely via protected lanes, trails, and safer sidewalks. Those things are relatively cheap compared to building even just, I'll use the example of Chesterfield County. They want to incentivize Amazon to expand their plant in the eastern part in the Bermuda district close to Hopewell. So they decided to build this new super intersection. And that super intersection project alone, you know, not only did the schematics include zero people walking and biking, there are no safe crossings for these new intersections that they want to build out there. It's all about facilitating large delivery truck traffic to that Amazon facility. But that project was going to cost about $60 million, which is actually in the year it was announced, the exact same size as the Greater Richmond Transit Company's annual budget. So it's very, very easy to look at our spending and realize that we have a problem and we're not investing in the types of solutions that we need for the coming century. And that's the thing that really gets me when it comes to transportation is that In America, we have just individualized choices and solutions to problems that capitalism creates in terms of having items transported from all corners of the globe to centralized manufacturing centers in places like eastern China, the United States, Japan, South Korea, certain parts of Southeast Asia, where the majority of manufacturing in the world goes on. And it is incredible to me that that was a decision that was made within the 70s in order to save a few cents because of how cheap fossil fuels were. And it's not until very recently that the the kind of fuel that these tanker ships were using was so dirty and so onerous that it was taking up an outside proportion of the carbon emissions in the world. It's just moving things around between different continents. And so Really, what transportation challenges is the core of capitalism, which is which is this idea that we are constantly expanding. We have to source production and materials and resources from all corners of the globe. We have to come up with manufactured wants, created wants, needs that come about in terms of transportation that come about due to choices that we have inflicted upon people in terms of making them have to choose a car or making them have to choose a specific uh, mode of transportation that is not communal. So instead of having, we'll say, a train that runs or having a subway that runs under Richmond or through Richmond, Richmond and its sister counties have not only decided to engage in projects like that, that you just mentioned when it comes to the Amazon facility in Chesterfield, but mainly the thought that comes to my mind is the dedicated GRTC lanes within Richmond, which are these incredible expansions, continually expansions of roads in order to 
come up with more vehicles in order to come up with more congestion. And that's really what those dedicated lanes have caused is a lot more congestion and a bit more confusion as well, given no one knows really what the signs mean for those particular buses if those buses aren't there or whether or not you can use the bus lane in order to turn, things like that. The entire traffic flow of Central Richmond, once you get off the highway into Jackson Ward, it is wild to me, absolutely wild to me. We changed the entire traffic flow, and there was never a serious conversation about, well, why don't we consider a different way to move and house people? And the reason why is because, of course, real estate developers run local city governments all throughout the country. But on top of that, the huge subsidies that car manufacturers get in terms of, especially under Donald Trump and Joe Biden, tariffs, and also when it comes to subsidies for fossil fuels. But also just the idea in America that we are these individuals and that, yes, we should be afraid of one another. All these threads sort of tie themselves together in this very disturbing quilt of unfortunate decisions that have led towards an idea, or at the very least, that have led towards a situation in which there's an incredible amount of CO2 and money that is wasted inside of Richmond and an incredible amount of money that's wasted within American society writ large just based on this idea that everyone should have a car. Everyone has a right to own a car and that cities and states and the federal government should be subsidizing and developing those projects as much as possible. Um, I, I do want to ask you one final thing when it comes to transportation. In the case of the United States and looking sort of overarchingly across the world, the rest of the world, China in particular, has begun putting out many highway systems and has developed a highway system that's very similar to that that you are discussing out of Texas. In places like Shanghai, traffic jams sometimes can last for days because of the amount of cars that are on the road and the amount of CO2 emissions that are put out, and not to mention things like benzene and other greenhouse gas emissions and also other toxic chemicals into the air, the amount of wasted energy that is put into transportation, given the kind of what we call a carbon budget that we have to spend between here and a specific set year or time in order to be able to mitigate worst effects of climate change, because we're not going to mitigate climate change, keeping that away. That is definitely coming. We're just trying to negotiate how bad it's going to get. And we tried, or at the very least, the world has expressed uh, a want to keep below 1.5C and then move that to 2C when it was very clear that 1.5C wasn't going to happen. And so transportation has become this bellwether, in essence, this sort of central thread in all of this in terms of the intersection of capitalism and racism and American politics. What do you see as a solution to that problem? Because we have exported the car culture to other countries, in particular China, which has heavily invested in its rail network inside its bus systems. Places like Japan, heavily, Korea, heavily invested in its rail system and its bus system, which is great. However, these countries are still littered with cars. And so the question is, if we can't expand the highways out of our problem, which Virginia has tried to do, and they are nice-looking highways, I'm not going to lie, even though we, if we can't expand our way out of the problem, if we can't expand the highways, if we can't continue the subsidies, what is, the, what is a solution that you see? And there are many ways of getting at this, whether it be tankers in terms of actually transporting materials around the world, gathering products from around the world to ship to different markets, or when it comes to transportation from those ships to stores or warehouses in terms of tractor trailers or trains, but mostly tractor trailers. And on top of that, from that point, distribution from those warehouses, things like Amazon in terms of those vans or UPS in terms of those large trucks that they drive or FedEx 
in terms of moving materials in these very individualized ways. What do you see as a solution overarching that we can implement? Yeah, I think first off, we have to really think about the way that we dedicate space and the way that we spend our money. I think one of the advantages that we have is that the solutions are very simple. You know, we have all the technology that we need currently to save ourselves from growing inequity, from increasing levels of homelessness and housing unaffordability, but also from the climate crisis. We know what we what we need. The things that we need are more houses. You know, we need more places for people to live and we need to shift our politics towards one of increasing abundance. This idea that we can build enough housing for everyone and we don't need to have a competition for the housing that remains, that's kind of why you're seeing prices have shot up so dramatically in Richmond, 50% over the last two years, is we have built less housing in the last two decades than we ever have in American history at a time when our population has been growing and a lot of people have been redistributing themselves, not just around the country, but within regions. The idea of an urban lifestyle where you can walk and bike and take the bus places is more appealing than it has been in probably 80 years. Where you're really finding people struggle is that a lot of our best neighborhoods to have that kind of lifestyle in Richmond, when you think about places like Church Hill or The Fan or downtown or Manchester, these are neighborhoods that currently are no longer replicable based on the regulations we have, whether that's zoning, whether it's minimum lot sizes, whether it's parking requirements. We've just put layers and layers of saying no to this type of development that once was ubiquitous. It was the only way to build a healthy, vibrant, successful city. So we need to do more to remove all of these exclusionary policies in our housing market so that we have the ability to build more housing for people because Richmond is a very desirable place to live now. We have a lot of great jobs, a lot of wonderful food, community arts. We're going to continue to attract new people and we should want new people to become Richmonders and help pay for all of the things that we want, like functional schools, parks, pools, all of this vibrant social infrastructure that we really need to build and to overcome decades of disinvestment here in the city. But we have to make more space for everyone. We need more space for newcomers. We need more space for people who've lived there their whole lives. And I think this is also a great paradigm to think about transportation. It's how do we move to a place of abundance where when you need to get from one point to another point, you have an abundance of options? Maybe it's riding your bike or walking or catching the bus. Maybe it's scooters. Maybe it's bike share. Maybe it is driving. Um, but you have an array of options available to you. But in order to get there, we need to really think about the way that we dedicate space. You know, right now we dedicate almost all of our space to just cars, travel lanes or parking. That's one of the reasons why the bus only lanes for the Pulse on Broad Street are actually a huge success. Not only do they help to reduce the level of confusion, especially now that they're being painted red, they're really separating out bus traffic from regular vehicle traffic. Having fewer lanes for cars is the number one way to make driving safer. The only way to get people to slow down is to have them be concerned about hitting something and damaging their car, unfortunately. People don't tend to make decisions based off of safety. They tend to focus more on whether their car is going to be okay. So really our only solution out of these interlocking problems is infrastructure. So that's reducing travel lanes, converting them into protected bike lanes, expanding sidewalks in part of town where the sidewalks are too narrow. Right now, we're just in a place where 80 years of investing in only cars has created this overabundance of car infrastructure that systemically asks people to drive. Every visual cue says you should drive or you don't really belong in this space because this is three lanes, one direction, plus parking, so what we need to start doing is to think about how we shift our space 
so that we're incentivizing those other options. Having the presence of bus-only lanes, showing that the bus is a priority and the city is making space to ensure that the dignity and convenience of those riders is prioritized over drivers. Setting aside protected bike lanes, you know, not just the 20% of people who are really avid cyclists feel comfortable getting around, but so that that other 60% of people who are incentivized to bike, would love to bike, but just don't feel safe for very valid reasons, we need to be out building infrastructure out so that those people feel safe biking around town. But all of that is really about reallocating space and trying to align our budget with our values. And that's a tricky political question. Very tricky because Americans have become accustomed to this idea that, I mean, which is the reason why whenever gas prices start to go up, all of a sudden the president's approval ratings start to go down. That's really been a thing ever since Jimmy Carter and also Nixon, which is this, this idea that there is this social contract between Americans and their government that, okay, if I have this car, you're going to make sure that gasoline is cheap. And you're also going to make sure that owning the car is as easy as possible and that it's as, and that you're going to try and make it as easy as possible and cheap as possible. In, in terms of infrastructure, particularly within Richmond, you're absolutely right that there need to be a plethora of options and there aren't now. There was a, a purported plan to begin thinking about a subway system which is incredible to me, Richmond does not have a subway system, but there also needs to be a serious look at, as you said, how we utilize space. And when you privatize space and when you make housing about making money and what Marx would call, but also within economic circles generally, the difference between exchange value and use value, that when you make housing a decision about exchange value, about what you can get out of it once you make an investment as a private person in order to capitalize on the amount of money that you put down in terms of a down payment and also the amount of money that you want to see that your property accrue as an individual, instead of looking at it as a way to go about having people have a place to stay, having them be safe, having them be accessible to everyone regardless of their disability, but also be affordable and sturdy and safe. As many people will tell you, especially when it comes to building out very quick apartment complexes, we hear almost on a weekly basis within the United States, but also around the world about apartment complexes that were built so fast that essentially that they're either unsafe in terms of structurally or their utilities don't work, water, gas, electricity, broadband, you name it. Now, I just I want to note also that statistic that you gave earlier about trucks today being larger than the size of the M4 Sherman tanks used in World War II is incredible because I looked at that. That is incredible. It looks like the Sherman tank was about 19 feet long, and it looks like and Ford F-250 today is somewhere along the lines of 20 to 23 feet long. That is madness, absolute madness. That is such a great statistic to bring out. And uh, it really illustrates the way in which American society has just gone towards an incredible excess of fossil fuels in terms of quote-unquote luxury. I really hope that we as a society are able to come together and make those differing choices on transportation because transportation links us into housing and it links us into how we relate and live next to one another. And as you stated before, American society, people are so suspicious, so fearful of one another based on skin color, socioeconomic status, appearance, et cetera, political opinion, that it's it's turned into hostility between people that, as I told you earlier, to me seems exacerbated by cars and this idea that it's like this giant game of Mario Kart where you're just trying to race one another, which I think is just one of the wildest ways just in general to think about it, which is just everyone gets a go-kart. Everyone just gets a go-kart and you can drive around and, you know, we hope nothing bad happens. And that's the way we do transportation. It's incredibly inefficient. It atomizes people. And on top of that, it creates an environment where people are incredibly hostile and, and competitive with one another. So I think it's a force for disunion within the United States. I think it's a driving factor, but also a symptom 
of the kind of sectarianism that we're seeing within our society. It was really awesome to have you on, Gordon. Of course, this is Wyatt Gordon. He is a contributor at the Virginia Mercury. He covers transportation and land use there. It was amazing having you. I'm really glad that we got the chance to talk. Yep. Thanks, Armando. No problem.